for the, I think it's the, yeah, 36th, 36th time uh, and final time for this series. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them and go to Acts 28. Acts 28. We have arrived. We've gotten to the very end of the book. And as I said this morning, as long as God doesn't show up in the next 30 to 40 minutes, we're going to finish Acts today. Amen. Um, as you're opening your Bibles and getting yourself situated, I would like to thank um, our elders who uh, serve and love this church with great care and concern and prayer. Um, they are men who uh, deeply love you, deeply love God, and want to see the gospel continue to go forward, not only from here at CF, but uh, in our city, around the world. And uh, I'm just so thankful that as uh, we navigate how to proclaim the gospel, how to serve and love Roscoe Village, how to serve and love Chicago, um, that I don't have to do that alone, that I get to do that alongside men that I love and trust and respect uh, very deeply. So uh, Wayne, Dave, Daniel, thank you for all the ways that you care about us, love us, serve us, um, and shepherd us. So, um, all right. So again, Acts, uh, Acts 28 is where we're going to be this morning. And I, I just want to say as we get, as we get into it, um, you know, not every church does this. Not every church does what we do. There are a lot of churches, there's a lot of pastors and, and like just theories and concepts and opinions on like what a sermon series should look like. And most people will say, especially in a transient city like Chicago, most people say, don't do anything longer than like eight weeks, 10 weeks at the most. Um, you know, do topical series, make sure you're taking, taking notice of the fact that people don't necessarily show up every week. So you don't want to necessarily walk through a long book of the Bible um, like what we tend to do. And I am so thankful that we are a church full of people who want to do the opposite of that and want to walk through books of the Bible. That for the most part, what we do here is, you know, occasionally we will do topical series, and, and I have no problem with that, um, and we'll bounce around from time to time. But for the most part, we take a book, and we walk through it, and we take our time, and, it, and we get through it in however much time it takes us to do that. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for our, my predecessors, the pastors who have come through CF, who have also preached this way. That This is how I grew up learning. Um, I was in a church where we were in the book of Genesis for like on and off for like three and a half years or something like that. Um, you know, our elders, as I just talked about, our elders uh, encourage this. This is uh, something that when we talk about preaching and when we talk about and I say, hey, this is what I'm thinking, that um, they're never like, oh, Acts, that's a really long one. Do you realize that? No one said that to me ahead of time. Um, but our elders care about that and want us to be people who are in the book. Um, and most of all you, like, this is a congregation who does love to open the word and uh, to let us be able to do this, where we can walk through a long book like this, um, and, and people want to continue to show up and continue to study. It is a, it is a great joy, and I very much appreciate that. And uh, just want to say thank you. And it's it is um, it's good and fun. And uh, Acts has been a challenge in a lot of different ways, but I'm I'm very thankful that we've gotten to study it over the past almost year. It was like eight and a half months, something like that, on and off. So. Um, thank you all very much. Um, let's pray, and then we can uh, we jump in and get to work. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this chance to worship you and celebrate you and honor you. And Lord, we thank you for uh, your word that guides us and leads us and instructs us and challenges us and rebukes us and gives us fuel and gives us um, gives us what we need to move forward and take another step and God I pray that you would make us people who hunger and thirst even more so for your word that we would 
never be satisfied, that we would always want more and more of you, more and more understanding, more and more wisdom. God, I thank you for the book of Acts, for what it has taught us, how it has challenged us, how it has encouraged us. Um, and Lord, as we, as we close it out, I pray that um, what you have for us this morning is not just wrap up and summary, but you have a word for us today. You gave us today, which means there's a reason we're here. There's a reason we're in this chapter. There's a reason you've got us here today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to focus and hear from you and engage with you as you speak to us, as you are always speaking to us. I pray that this morning that we would listen as you speak to us. God, I pray that uh, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Acts 28. We're going to start in verse 1, and then we'll, uh, we'll go back and talk about it. So starting in verse 1, it says, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us with hospitality hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick and with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli. Now, they were, now there, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. We can stop there. Hey, David, can you grab me the, David, David, can you grab me the, the gray remote control? You guys can talk about it. Yeah, can you bring it up for me? Sorry. I lost my laser pointer. This is my backup. Since it is uh, our last day in Acts, I thought it would be a good day for another map. Because we haven't done a map in a while, and this is the last one. So um, I want to recap, because we start in verse 1, and it says, After we had been brought safely through. So for those who weren't with us, chapter 27 speaks very extensively about this ship ride that Paul and a bunch, 275 other people take. Um, so they start down here in Caesarea. They go up to Sidon, and then they end up sailing. They want to go this way. But because of the winds, they go up through Cyprus, along to Myra, into Rhodes, they get down into Cape Salmone, 
And right here is Fair Havens, which, as you'll remember, Fair Havens is where Paul said, hey, we should stay here. It's bad sailing. It's going to be bad weather. We need to stay here, rest out the winter, and then we'll continue the rest of the way. The crew says, no, we got this. All we got to do is get from here up to here in Phoenix. We'll be fine. Instead, what happens is they try to get to Phoenix, and they end up getting thrown out into the ocean. And while this is a straight line, this is where they spend the two weeks at sea in the storm. So we have no idea what this looks like out here because they got thrown all over the place. They had no moon, no sun, no stars. They didn't know where they were. So finally, they get to Malta, which is where we start this morning. Um, and so they finally land at Malta. Now, the sailors would have known this is Malta, maybe not from where they landed because they landed on the opposite side of where the main port of the island was. The native people from uh, from Malta were Phoenician. They spoke a dialect of their people, so they didn't speak um, Greek. And so the people who were Greeks and Romans saw the Phoenicians as these outsiders, as called them barbarians even, because they kept to themselves and they spoke a language that nobody else really spoke. But these people welcomed this shipwreck crew and they took care of them. Remember, there, like I said, there are 276 people on board of this ship. And they were warmed and cared for by the natives on the island. It says in verse 2, they kindled a fire for the crew to sit by and warm themselves because they had been perpetually cold and wet for two weeks stuck in that storm. They swam or floated their way in from the shipwreck, and now the weather is still not doing well, and it's still raining and storming. And so they build a fire to help warm this crew. In fact, the word Malta is tied to the word refuge. And that's what this place ends, ends up being for Paul and the rest of the rest of the people on board. It says in verse 3, they're, they're building this fire. And so verse 3, Paul, being the proactive person he is, he goes looking for firewood. And in collecting firewood, unbeknownst to him, he collects a viper. And the snake, cold-blooded, gets near the fire, warms up, and jumps and attracted to the heat, jumps and latches itself on Paul's arm. Paul has been a prisoner for the better part of four years at this point. And he was a prisoner for no real reason. A bunch of fake trumped up charges. He's almost killed at the hands of the Jewish authorities. He is stuck on a ship that gets caught in a two week storm. He finally gets to land after being shipwrecked. He gets a chance to warm up and be by a fire and eat some food. And he gets bitten by a viper. And not just bitten by a viper, but it says in verse 4 that it is hanging off of his hand. It is dug in to his hand. Can things ever get any better for Paul? The locals who know the common animals around, they see this snake, they see this viper, and they immediately assume, oh, this man is a murderer. He is some kind of evil. He has avoided death somehow on the seas, but the goddess of justice, Dike, who followed, must have followed him here and is going to finish the job and punish him. Paul sees the snake, feels the snake, and it says in verse 5, he shook it off into the fire and suffered no harm. Paul didn't freak out. He didn't cry out, oh, woe is me, oh God, why, oh why, after all of this, now finally a snake bite. He didn't lash out in anger and frustration. Paul knew everything he has been through, after everything he has endured, after having his own doubts and worries and fears calmed and reassured by Jesus himself while on the ship, Paul knew he's not going down because of a snake bite. He's gone through too many things 
for this little snake to be the thing that puts him down. Rome is waiting for him. And so he just kind of shakes it off into the fire. Now the others, the locals, again, they know this snake. They know the venomous uh, effects that this snake would have. They're watching him, assuming, okay, well, he's going to swell up from the poison, and eventually he's just going to fall over and die. And so they watch him for a while, real awkward-like. And eventually, it doesn't happen. Paul just continues to be fine. And so neither of those things happen. He doesn't swell up. He doesn't die. And so they change their minds about Paul and say, well, because nothing happened to him, because he didn't die, he must be a god. How quickly their minds have changed. They go from, he's a murderer to, nope, must be a god. Years before, in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra, and they heal a man who had never walked. And the people in Lystra see this and immediately assume that Paul and Barnabas were gods in human form. But then, like three days later, that same group of people who thought Paul was a god when he showed up took him outside of the city and stoned him so badly they thought he was dead. Here in Acts 28, we sort of have the opposite, right? The natives have originally assumed the worst about Paul, and then they go to the other extreme and believe, no, he must be a god. And while Luke doesn't record it, we know enough about Paul that he would not have stood for that kind of thinking and would have shut it down immediately because there's only one god to worship, and it's not him. Now, Paul's reputation after the snakebite situation must continue to, it does continue to increase. In verse 7, it says, The chief man of the island, Publius, uh, who is the governor, the Roman authority figure on this island, the Roman representative, he throws a party, basically. For three days, he, he throws a party and he offers them hospitality and, and food and drink, and they celebrate. During this time, his father has fever and dysentery. Paul shows up and prays, lays hands on the man, he gets healed. News travels fast around the island. In verse 9, it says, everybody else from the island who is sick show up, and they are cured. Those who were on the ship end up staying in Malta for three months. This three months that they were supposed to stay in Fairhavens to weather out the storm, to weather out the winter. And so they finally set sail. When a boat is finally ready, the people from Malta were so thankful for Paul, so thankful for his time there with them, that they loaded up the ship with whatever materials and supplies they would need for the rest of the voyage. Paul and Luke and Aristarchus were on this island for three months. And the only details we get from Luke are the thing with the snake and that Paul did some healings. But we've read enough of Luke, Luke's accounts so far. We've been paying attention to how Paul carries himself in these different cities. Paul was with these people for three months. And while Luke doesn't record it, you know he shared the gospel with all these people in Malta. Now it's possible Luke doesn't record it because maybe nobody actually became a Christian. No one actually confessed their faith in Christ at that time. But there is no way that Paul spent three months without talking about Jesus. And regardless of how those three months play out, what is clear is that the people of Malta, they receive Paul well. That's not all that impressive. He's, we've seen that happen before. But the really interesting thing here is that he leaves and they don't chase him out and try and kill him on the way out. That's unique for Paul. Almost every city he leaves, he leaves because they kick him out and they want him dead. But these people in Malta actually love Paul and send him out with joy and supplies. I think the shipwreck happened, I think it happened where it happened for Paul to share the gospel in that place. Nothing happens by accident, right? God is in control of all things at all times. God wanted Paul on that island for that time to care and love for the people of Malta. 
He was laying the seeds of the gospel that, so that whoever comes next preaching the gospel might already have something to build upon. And so Paul finally leaves. In verse 11, it says there's a ship that did stay at Malta that went, wait, waited out through the winter, and finally it's ready to set, set sail. A ship similar to the one they actually sailed on of the original time when they were arriving to Malta, it's a sip of Alexandria. So I'm sure they all got a little bit uneasy about how this was going to go. Luke gives us some details and said there was carvings of the twin gods Castor and Pollux, the supposed gods of navigation. Luke is always good for a few details that nobody really asked for, but thanks, Luke. The group set sail to Syracuse. If we got the, can we got the map back up one more time? So we're in Malta down here. They go up to Syracuse and then Regium, and then they're going to get to Portioli and eventually up into Rome. They sail to Syracuse, Regium, and Puteoli. Puteoli, clearly from the way it's pronounced, it sounds like a dish you would order at Olive Garden. We're in Italy. Puteoli is a principal port of the southern Italy. Specifically, it is where the Roman ships that carried the wheat cargo would show up. They actually got precedence to come into the port ahead of anyone else. In Puteoli, they find some spiritual family members. It says they get aboard, they get on land, and they go find the brothers and sisters. Not surprising that there is already Christians there because this is a major port with lots of different people coming in and out. There was a, also a long-established Jewish community in that city. Julius, the centurion who is responsible for Paul, who has been kind to Paul throughout these travels, once again gives Paul some leeway. Even though Paul is a prisoner of Rome, he allows Paul to stay with the Christian community for a week. And then we read at the end of verse 14, And so we came to Rome. After years in prison, threats on his life, storms and shipwrecks and snake bites, God fulfills his promise. He keeps his word. God reminds us once again that he is trustworthy and what he says he will always fulfill. Word of Paul's arrival gets to Rome before he does, and some of the Christians that are already in Rome meet Paul. They come out 30 to 40 miles outside of the city to accompany him into Rome. If you were to turn the page in, in your Bibles, the next book after the book of Acts is the book of Romans. And it was written about three years prior to Acts 28, about three years prior to when, when Paul actually gets there. And he says in Romans 1, Paul writes and says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. Paul has wanted to get to Rome for a long, long time. And no doubt he probably wondered what it was going to be like, what it would be like when he finally met these Christians face to face, when he finally showed up. And what he experienced was encouragement and a warm welcome. The wait had been worth it. The struggle had been worth it. He gets to see these Christian brothers and sisters and rejoice with them. Once finally within the city limits, Paul is given the liberty to stay by himself. This is not, he doesn't stay in the general prison population, in the general camp or the barracks. He lives by himself, and we find out at the end of the chapter that he's actually paying for his own house or apartment. He gets some kind of special privilege. But throughout that time, he is chained to a single soldier who would get a four-hour shift. So on 
continuously, every four hours, another soldier would come, unchain the other guy, and chain himself to Paul. And so Paul was free to go about his apartment or house, whatever it was that he was living in, but he was always stuck next to a Roman soldier. But that didn't deter Paul. In his letter to the church in Philippi, he says that in, uh, in chapter 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul took the fact that he was chained to this regular rotation of guards as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. He paid attention and responded to the moments God gave him to be the light in the darkness of the Roman guards. But it wasn't just the guards that he spoke with. We see in verse 17, it says, After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Once he's able to, Paul does a version of what we've seen him do over and over again throughout his ministry years, right? He would show up in a new city, and he'd go straight to the synagogue to go preach and teach about the gospel and teach and preach using the Old Testament to point people to Jesus. He would teach the Jewish people first. He couldn't do that in Rome because he was under house arrest and chained to a Gentile. So to improvise, he instead calls some of the Jewish leaders together so that they can talk at his place. Paul summarizes the last few years of his life and why he is now in this place chained to this guard. And right off the bat there in verse 17, Paul makes a point to share with them about his innocence. He wants them to know that he is not an enemy of the Jewish people or the customs of Israel. Despite that he was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, even though it was the Jews who originally got this whole thing rolling, he says, I, I'm not an enemy of the Jewish people. In Acts 21.11, there was a man named Agabus who was a prophet who spoke a prophecy about Paul. Remember, he was the guy who took Paul's belt and he tied himself with his hands and feet. He kind of loped himself around and said, whoever owns this belt is going to end up this way. The, the person who owns this belt is going to be bound and handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles. And that's the way Paul tells it to the Jewish leaders, that it was the Jewish people who got me in trouble and put me in chains with the Romans. But Paul continues and he says, when the Romans did get me, when the Romans tried me, when they put me under examination, they found no guilt. They found no fault. In fact, they wanted to set me free. They could tell there was no reason for me to be killed or even be in chains. But because of the objections of the Jewish leaders who wanted me dead, I appealed to Caesar. For my own safety, I appealed to Caesar. But Paul will say, let me be clear, that wasn't about bringing something against Israel. It wasn't about me bringing something against the leaders who were against me. It was merely out of my own defense. Remember, there was, uh, there was a plot that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem wanted the leaders of the Romans in Caesarea to send Paul back along the roads so that they could jump him and kill him on the roads. I mean, look at the language Paul uses in 17, 18, and 19. He says, he calls them brothers. He says, I've done nothing wrong against our people or our fathers. I have no charge against my nation. 
Paul is trying to make it very clear to them that he is not an enemy of the Jewish people, and regardless of where his faith may now lie, he was still a Jewish, Jewish citizen, and they were still his people. They were still his brothers and sisters. All the more reason that Paul has such a burden for them to know the truth of the gospel because they're his people, they're God's people, and he wants them to know about the reality that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In verse 20, Paul maintains something that he has been saying all since this whole thing began. He says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing these chains. I'm in chains because of the hope of Israel. The hope that our ancestors clung to. The hope that kept them going while they were slaves in Egypt. The hope that drove them while they were exiles and dispersed. The hope they held on to throughout captivity. The hope of the fulfillment of the promise. The arrival of the one. The set apart one. The chosen one. The Christ. The Messiah. It was that hope of that promise from God that drove and continues to drive the Jewish people. Paul says, my hope is the same as your hope. The only difference is that I know our hope has been fulfilled. I know that our hope has been vindicated. I'm in chains because of the message I preach, which doesn't attach, it doesn't attack or undermine Judaism. No, no, what I'm preaching fulfills it. Everything the prophets, everything the judges, everything our ancestors spoke of, that day that they longed to see has come. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer. In verse 21, the Jewish leaders finally respond to Paul. And they say, well, you know what? We have not received any letters from Jerusalem about you. We haven't heard any bad words about you. We haven't heard any news from you. Now, the truth is, there's probably a letter coming. It's probably on its way from Jerusalem. There's a good chance it got caught up in the rough winter that Paul already experienced. Because the Jews in Jerusalem were so angry and wanted Paul so dead, there's no way they didn't send some kind of correspondence to the temple, to the synagogues that were in Rome, to try and make sure that Paul found um, trouble. But without some kind of confirmation or guidance from the leaders in Jerusalem, these local authorities weren't going to try and start trouble with a Roman citizen who appealed to Caesar. Instead, they kind of go the opposite way. They, they take the opportunity and they ask questions. They want to learn more about this sect, this offshoot. Because what they did know about this Christianity, about the way, was that many spoke out against it. See, Christianity dis disrupts the unjust. It, it disrupts the ungodly. It shines lights in dark places. And those who make their home in those dark places would rather the lights stay dim. That causes people to speak out about Christianity, not usually because the way has done anything specifically wrong, but rather it calls out already existent evil that people want to claim as normal. And so the leaders pick a day and they say, we'll come back in a few days and you can talk to us more about this. And Paul spends from day until morning and more leaders show up. His apartment, his house, whatever is packed full of the leaders from Rome. And he spends the day from morning to evening doing what he loved to do. He taught and he expounded and he testified to the truth of the kingdom of God. 
The very skilled and capable Pharisee that Paul was walked these leaders through the Old Testament that they knew so closely, that they loved so deeply, and showed them how it points to Jesus, showed them how it fulfilled the prophecy, how he fulfilled the prophecies and the visions and the concepts and the themes, how all of it points to him. He used the law of Moses and the prophets trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. But not only that, look at verse 23. It says, when they had happened a day for him, they came to him in his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. Testifying, he shared his own story. He shared his own experiences, his own testimony of the reality of the kingdom of God in his life, how Jesus had called him and changed him and used him to further this gospel message. Share scripture with people. Open the Bible and read the word with other people, but also open your lives and share that with them as well. People want to know that your faith matters, that it's real and functional here and now, that it's not just an abstract concept or theory. They want to know that it matters here and now. How great a day it must have been to sit in that house and hear from Paul, share his heart and passion and knowledge and his own experiences all in an effort for these men to put their faith in Jesus. We see in verse 24, as it happened every other time, he shares all of this and they get to the end of the day and some were convinced, some believed, some put their faith in Christ, while others did not. We should never be upset or burdened or hurt that when we share the gospel, there are going to be those who do not receive it. Not everyone Paul preached to received the gospel and put their faith in Jesus. Not everyone Peter preached to received the gospel and put their faith in Jesus. Not everyone Jesus preached to put their faith in the gospel and received Jesus. Our job is not to change anyone's hearts or minds. We expound, we testify, we teach, we share, and we allow the Holy Spirit to do his convincing work in the hearts and minds of the people. And so the evening finally breaks up with disagreements based around a specific statement from Paul that he makes in verse 25. It says, disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul is quoting Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. It's a passage that's quoted multiple times, actually, in the New Testament. Jesus uses it to speak about himself and his own ministry regarding the Jewish people who didn't want to pay attention. The passage originally, actually in Isaiah 6, is God speaking to Isaiah. He's telling him as he begins his prophetic ministry, he says, look, your ministry is going to be hard, Isaiah. In fact, the whole point of what you are going to go do is to make the deaf more deaf and the blind more blind. Meaning, you're going to say things, just as Jesus did, just as Paul did. You're going to say things that make those who have ears who are already inclined not to listen to want to cover their ears. You're going to say things to those who have eyes who already don't want to see the truth, then they want to see what they want to see. You're going to say things that's going to make them want to shut their eyes. 
When in reality, if somebody would open their eyes and see the work of the gospel played out, if they would hear with their ears the truth of the gospel reality and understand and believe the gospel message and turn to God in repentance, he would and he will always heal them from the sickness of sin that they find themselves in through the forgiveness, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Many hear and see and reject the message because they don't truly want to be healed. They don't truly want to be in the light, but would rather stay in the darkness. They don't want to give up control. They think they don't need it. They got everything on their own. They're just fine. So many, in fact, too many, believe that the gospel doesn't matter or that it, it's for later on. I'll, I'll make a decision when I'm older. I'll make a decision when the kids are gone. I'll make a decision when I'm retired, when I'm on my deathbed. Or I just won't make one at all because the gospel is just not true. Brothers and sisters, see with your eyes and hear with your ears. Believe in your heart the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God in the flesh died for your sins and rose again. And in doing so, displayed his absolute power and authority over all existence so that there is now forgiveness and new life for those who believe here, now, and in eternity. The message of the gospel is for all people. But because the Jewish peoples and specifically the leaders' ears were inclined not to listen and eyes inclined not to see, Paul lets it be known, as he did in Antioch, as he did in Corinth, as he did in Ephesus beforehand, that this message, yes, it's coming to the Jews first, but from now on it's going to go to the Gentiles. And they will listen. They might not all receive it, but there is hope and opportunity there, and the gospel is going to go forward. This word of truth cuts to the heart of the Jewish leaders. That's where much of their dispute comes from. And it still makes an impact today. The, the notion that the gospel puts no restrictions, no performance expectations, no requirements on a person, that salvation through faith in Jesus is not about how good you are, but how great God is. That salvation through faith in Jesus is not about your past or your present, but the future that God has for you. That salvation through Jesus is not about the sins you have committed or the sins that have been committed against you. People want special treatment. We want to feel special and important and have this selective status. I've done all the right things. I've memorized all the verses. I'm nice. I show up every Sunday. I put money in the basket. I'm a good person. And so I'm more deserving than others. See, the reality is the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Anyone can come to it, regardless of age, race, gender, intellect, education, social status, or experience. If you would admit your need for a Savior and believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins in your place and choose for him to be your Savior and Lord and King of your life, there is hope and there is redemption and there is new life there. There is rest and forgiveness and grace and mercy to be had by and through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gift of salvation is available for all people. And for some, that's offensive. That's too wild a notion for them to grasp. And it can make people angry and jealous and reveal just how self-righteous they are. Repent of your sins. Turn away from them. Repent of your rebellion and repent of your self-righteous attitude. And receive the grace and mercy offered to you by placing your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. 
It says in verse 30, Paul spends the next two years at his own expense in this place, and he welcomed all all those who were with him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He can't leave this place, but he's allowed to welcome anybody he wants in. And when they come, he proclaims the kingdom of God to them. He teaches the same message he's been teaching throughout all of these years in all of these cities. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, and Savior of the world. And for the first time in a long time, he's able to do that without hindrance. He's able to do that and not be worried about being chased or or attacked. He's able to just do what he loves and share the word. And that's where the book ends. Now, some of you might say, really? I mean, what about Caesar? We've been talking about this go before Caesar, go see Nero thing. What about the fact that Paul is still a prisoner stuck in chains? He's still chained to a guy all day long. Right? We want the conclusion. We want the showdown. We want the final battle. Why is this the ending, Luke? What happens to Paul? Between church history documents and some tradition, we have a general idea of how things progress for Paul following Acts 28. After these two years, Paul eventually does go and stand before Nero, and he's acquitted. He's actually set free. At that point, Paul goes on a fourth missionary journey, mainly headed for Spain because he had wanted to go there for a long, long time. He also made a circuit to touch base with some of the previous uh, churches that he helped to start. And then somewhere along the way, Paul gets arrested again. Shocker. But this time, it's not as comfortable or relational as this trip has been. He eventually makes his way back to Rome, and he is actually in prison and in chains, chained to a wall. It's during that time, during this second imprisonment in Rome, that he writes uh, 2 Timothy. It's his last letter, his latest dated letter anyway. And you can read it, and you can hear the finality in his instructions and insight to Timothy. He says to him, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul knew during that second imprisonment his time was up. And sometime in late 67 or early 68 AD, he is taken outside of the Roman city limits, and he is beheaded. Why don't we get any of that from Luke? Why don't we at least get the confrontation with Caesar? Why leave Paul in chains, paying for his own house arrest, waiting to meet Nero? The book of Acts, though it focuses a lot on Paul, isn't about Paul. We get more details about Paul's journeys and work, mainly because Luke spent a lot of time with Paul. If Luke had spent as much time with Peter or Barnabas, he would have wrote about more of Peter and Barnabas. The book of Acts isn't about Paul. It's the account of the Holy Spirit moving through people. Almost a year ago, we looked at Acts 1.8. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
And that's really how the book plays out. It starts with the apostles and some followers confused and overwhelmed, not knowing how to process everything. They don't know how to proceed, and they got to figure out, okay, now what? Now what do we do? How do we live like Jesus is here even though he's not here anymore? How do we follow? How do we respond? How do we do what he has commanded us to do even though he's gone and he doesn't hear to tell us if we're right or wrong? It's the same question we all walk through and wrestle with every day as believers. How do we do this? How do we follow Jesus even though he isn't here? Jesus took care of that for them and for us. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And they receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit moves through the apostles. And word begins to spread in Jerusalem. The gospel begins to preach. And the group begins to grow by the hundreds and thousands. People are hearing this gospel message, hearing this truth, and preached by former fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and blue-collar guys. And the word is spreading. They preached what they knew. They preach that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who died on the cross for our sins in our place and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem get upset and jealous because this movement is growing. They even take one of the vocal teachers, they take that Stephen guy, and they stone him to death. And from that persecution, momentum heats up, and the Christ followers take their families and their friends, and they take their stuff, and they take their faith, and they get out of Jerusalem, and they spread all over Judea. And now, because of the persecution of the gospel, the gospel is going into Judea, and it's spreading to other Jewish believers. And now it's going even into Samaria, to those half-breeds. And generations of hate and violence and war between the Jews and the Samaritans begin to find healing and even shalom because the gospel takes what is broken and fixes it. And now even the Samaritans begin to believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who died on the cross for their sins in their place and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And then Peter finds himself sitting in the house of a Gentile soldier, the very kind of people who have been oppressing and hurting the Jews for so long. And this man and his whole family and his whole household look at the apostle and they say, teach us about Jesus, we want to learn. And there in that house, the fulfillment of the prophets who said one day all would gather together, one day all would be welcome at the table, it becomes true. These Gentiles, these pagans, these idolaters, these unclean ones leave behind their idols, leave behind their witchcraft, their burning books, entire cities, entire economic systems begin to get turned upside down and altered forever because of the work and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because people from all nations and tribes and tongues begin to put their faith in the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who died on, our, on the cross for our sins in our place and rose and ascended into heaven. And if ever there was an end of the earth in the minds of the Jews and the Christians, it would be Rome. The very center of oppression, the very center of opposition to the Jewish people living truly free. It is the representation of everything Israel expected their Messiah to rebel against. How many times in the Gospels does someone want Jesus to start a fight, to start a rebellion? How many times did people miss the truth of who Jesus was because they were expecting a military leader who was going to start a war with Rome? This place, the Rome dictated culture for the known world. What happened in Rome influenced and affected 
everything else for everyone else. And while Paul was not the first one to bring the gospel to Rome, there's already a church there. He, as a prisoner, gets to share the gospel. And it said in that letter to Philippians, he emboldened the believers. They had an extra bout of courage because Paul is there in chains preaching. He's able to welcome anyone and everyone into his home, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance in Rome. That is the word and promise of God fulfilled. See, the book of Acts reminds us that there is no stopping the word of God. It doesn't matter if it's religious persecution or political persecution or personal persecution. Through riots and misunderstandings and assassination, assassination attempts and disagreements and storms and shipwrecks and chains and stake mites, the word of God will always prevail. Though life is full of hindrances and roadblocks and darkness, the word of God will always prevail. This is a book a reminder that we live in the midst of challenges and oppositions to the truth of God's word. But we are to do so knowing that the victory is in Christ and the victory has already been won. Being a Christian doesn't mean life is easy. It doesn't mean you avoid all the issues and pain and hardship. It means you trust God. It means you follow him. It means you know that no matter what situation, what hindrances, what uphill obstacles you deal with, at the end of the day, the victory is God's and the word of God will last and remain forever. You will endure hardship. You don't have to pretend like you don't. You don't have to pretend like your life is easy all and carefree all the time. Life is hard. Life is exhausting. And at times you will worry and you will fret, and you will doubt, and you will get overwhelmed, and you will get scared. That's normal. That's human. Trust God's plan. Trust God's timing. Trust God's purposes for you. See, the book of Acts continues today. Pastor David Gruzik says it this way, there is no end to the story, because the history of the church continues this story on and on throughout the centuries. Trusting in Jesus, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Father, the word of God will continue to spread without hindrance and continue to change lives for the glory of God. The book of Acts really is a never-ending story. As you live and learn and grow, as you listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life and you respond to that leading and calling, when you proclaim and shine the light of the gospel with your words and with your actions, you are continuing the story of the church, the story of the Holy Spirit and the gospel going forward. Every day that is given to you is given to you by the king of all existence with purpose for it. It will not always be easy. It will not always be sunshine and rainbows, but regardless of the day, regardless of the season, God's word will go forward. God's message of grace will go forward, and he is inviting us to be part of that story. He's inviting us to add to that story, to the unfolding narrative of the supremacy of God's will in this world as he redeems and renews and reconciles and restores all things back to himself. In Acts 1, Jesus ascends into heaven, and the disciples, rightly so, are, are just watching him go. And he ascends into the clouds, and he disappears. And they're still just standing there, awestruck, staring into the clouds. And an angel shows up, and he says, hey guys, what are you looking at? He's gone. 
He'll come back again, but it's time for you to get going. It's time for you. You got work to do. And they said, okay, well now, how? What do we do? Brothers and sisters, Jesus made it very clear. Now what we do is we follow the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives to glorify God and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. This book that reminds us of the power of the Holy Spirit in us. This book that calls us to get up and go. That you have invited us to be part of what you are doing in this world. You don't need us, but you call us and use us. That we get to play a small part, write a couple of verses, write a couple of chapters in the story of your will, in the story of your work to bring light into the darkness. God, help us to respond. Help us to be listeners of the Holy Spirit, to, to be in tune, to, to pay attention. And when you tell us to move, God, give us the boldness to move. Over and over, we see people praying for boldness, asking for boldness, acting in boldness. God, make us a bold people. A people who will step, step out on faith, trusting you're going to give us the words, trusting you're going to give us the opportunities and, and to know what to do in situations. And when we don't know to do, what to do, God, I pray that we would run to you. And ask for you to lead us and guide us. God, we thank you that, God, I thank you that, that this book doesn't end with sunshine and rainbows. That it, it's a reminder that life is hard and it continues to be hard. But even in the hard, even in the dark, even in the chains and the imprisonments and the persecutions, even in that you are glorified, you are made much of. And this world cannot take our joy. This world cannot take our hope because those things are wrapped up and grounded in you. God, help us to go out and to live lives that reflect you, that glorify you, that make much of you and point others toward you. As we continue on this story that you are writing, God, I pray that we would live in response to the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, that we would have boldness and confidence to share the good news of great joy that is for all people that you have given us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone who doesn't know you, who hasn't, there put, hasn't put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, Lord, that today in this moment, right now as they hear this, that today would be that day where they choose you, where the Holy Spirit, where you would knock down whatever walls and hindrances they have up in their hearts, that grace and mercy would abound and flow through them. God, you have called us to be the lights of the world. I pray that you would help us to shine brightly in the darkness. We thank you and praise you. Amen.